Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. As a small business owner, you are the business, and you know the time you're spending on payroll and HR could be spent in a hundred better ways. Ceridian PowerPay is fast, simple, and intuitive software trusted by over 40,000 Canadian small business owners like you. Automate your HR and payroll processes, keep track of compliance, and pay your people from your desktop or mobile phone. Free up time to focus on what really matters when it comes to your business, and get back to doing what you love with Ceridian PowerPay. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we are thrilled to have Mary Jane Leslie, Chief Growth Officer at LifeRaft Incorporated in Halifax, Nova Scotia. MJ specializes in identifying how to leverage open source intelligence for security programs for clients ranging from enterprise organizations to investigative firms. Her career is focused on the education and implementation of SaaS-based products and services targeted to the security industry. With a background in technology and communications, MJ understands the unique needs of clients and how to identify new solutions for the ever-changing security landscape. Welcome to the show, MJ. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're delighted to have you from the uh, lovely Atlantic seacoast. We don't have enough podcasts from there. We have to get get better at that. But we're delighted to have you here. Now, as you know, entrepreneurs are busy people, and they like to know what's in it for them if they're going to get like involved with your uh, articles or marketing materials or your podcasts. So let's tell them what the key ideas are that you'd like to share with them over the, the next 40 minutes on this podcast. Uh, yeah, so I think a couple of the themes, at least, that I'm going to touch on is um, definitely failure. So I'm a big uh, advocate of success through failure. Um, so I think sharing uh, different anecdotes and some situations where I've I've failed or the company has failed um, proves to be very useful for people moving forward. I'm also going to touch on a, a few things um, about being a female and then also for, non, for males, um, interacting with females that... 
or not just entrepreneurs, but in the tech industry or tech security industry as it relates to my um, company. And that's, you know, traditionally not a very female centric or um, industry. So just some of the learnings I've had through that and then just some practical takeaways. So I think that there's, I've been um, exposed to a lot of different multi co-founder organizations that have taught me a lot, both from a management perspective, but then also from an employee perspective and kind of looking at how you approach uh, different situations and then some, how to maybe avoid some traditional pitfalls that um, occur in those scenarios. Wow. Sounds like an action-packed <laughs> 40 minutes. Um, to get started, though, tell me what is a chief growth officer? What what does one do? How is that different from marketing or sales or whatever? Um, so they came up with my title, I think, as a catch-all, which um, so it does take after the sales, what we call sales operations. Um, so I actually manage everything from sales, pre-sales, so our sales engineering team, our customer support team, our account uh, executive team, all of our middle management, as well as the half of the product development. So it's a bit of a, a wide scale, but it gives quite a bit of interest and um, some cohesiveness on how to, to develop the team. And we actually set it on growth just because of the size of the company that we were at. So um, a, a good component of my job is not just to grow things like revenue and customer base, but how we position ourselves um, to either the investment community or for potential M&A opportunities. Um, and that's all kind of centered around growth. So I manage growth from the company from a people perspective, from a revenue perspective, and from an investment perspective. That's pretty awesome. I really like yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Should more companies have a chief growth officer? I think a lot of companies probably do. Um, they're just under another hat. So I have a feeling a lot of COOs probably um, are doing a lot of this work to begin with and, and potentially some CMOs. So a lot of marketing officers are probably taking on a lot more significant um, kind of responsibility areas outside of marketing. They just aren't getting as much credit for it. <laughs> okay, very cool. And tell us just a little bit about LifeRaft. Uh, yeah, yeah, so... We're, as you mentioned, we're based in Nova Scotia, and we are a technology company that produced a platform um, that actually goes out and collects uh, and aggregates content from basically anywhere on the internet, so social media, deep and dark web, um, for potential threats. So that could be threats against an uh, individual, threats against a company, threats against a location. Um, so we're used very much, it's um, almost predominantly in the private sector, but it's cross-industry. So we deal with big tech as well as healthcare, oil and gas, financial institutions. Um, the application is very broad um, depending on the industry, but it's all surrounded by security, global management of threats, and then how to and yeah, how to how to manage that kind of content. And 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 tell me just a little bit about the uh, the story of, <laughs> of, of LifeRaft. Uh, as many things in my life have started, it's three guys in a coffee shop uh, with a napkin. So there's, I've got three co-founders who are phenomenal, and, and um, I, they actually brought me on shortly after they incorporated the company, but um, they are definitely the founders, and then I joined them and uh, am part of their C-suite now. But they had an idea. Um, it was after a big boom in the industry on social media marketing, so there was a very large exit in the Maritimes from a social media marketing company that was sold to Salesforce, and um, there was some influence around that exit because they were... They were bought for a substantial amount of money, but they were 
only doing aggregation on content for marketing purposes. And there was a huge gap in the market for anyone doing it for either law enforcement or security applications. And that's, it's a very different side of the coin because you're looking at, uh, you know, the one in the million post instead of aggregating trends amongst millions of posts. So um, they took a bit of a, a different stance on how they wanted to, to approach that market and they built the product accordingly. Cool. Can you share with us so we, we understand the benefit that uh, an organization like LifeRaft creates? Can you share with me a, a customer story about how someone had a problem and you guys were able to uh, set them up? Uh, yeah, so there's a couple that are um, very broad in application. So there's, I, I would say on a daily basis, um, there is a threat against an executive and you think of some high, um, high level, almost celebrity-ish um, executives in certain companies. There's an ongoing um, kind of threat to their life, unfortunately, just given the, the nature of the, the world we live in. So we deal a lot with active um, threat management for those types of individuals and then other ones would be, you know, for um, a workplace violence, for example, is that as an application, um, somebody bringing a gun to work, that is a very real thing that happens. And um, luckily, not as often in Canada, but um, absolutely in the U.S. So we tried to be the preventative step in that. So when people make those types of threats online that they're going to do something, um, our our entire purpose is to find that and uh, and allow the companies to act on it proactively. So a story has a beginning and a middle and an end, and it starts with someone with a problem and then solves it for them. So uh, <laughs> you describe sort of some scenarios, but uh, I'm just thinking of a company came to you with a problem and how you kept them safe. So, so, so uh, I just wasn't quite satisfied. There was no happy ending to those stories. Well, I guess they're all still alive, but <laughs> okay. I will give you, um, sorry, I have to be careful because we're in security. So it's actually a weirdly small world. However, I will give you a broad stroke of, yeah, you don't um, have to name the company. I just, yeah, I know story. you'll be able to figure out even with oh. this one, it's kind of one in four, um, but that's okay. So we work with major, um, national sporting leagues. And one of their issues, and this is a more lighthearted one, so it's not so heavy on gloom and doom, but a big issue for them is they have people that run either on their field or their court on a regular basis during sporting events. Um, this is usually fueled by people saying, if I get 15 retweets, I will run on the field. Um, oh, my. Our software is able to pick up that tweet and actually usually identify where or um, who said it. And then the sporting organization or the stadium itself or the arena can deploy their security officers to go and make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, from a interruption perspective, that's important for spectators, but also from a financial perspective, um, it costs upwards of $25,000 every time one of these organizations has to stop a game. Um, so this is a, a huge benefit to them if they can proactively um, make sure that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Wow, that's a great example. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, and is, is this a, an, a, an AI-assisted solution, or is it just sort of massive coverage of all potential social media and communications channels? 
Uh, yeah, so it's both. We have aggregation capabilities, which is less AI and more just the technology. Uh, but then we do have some AI to help filter out, as you can understand with um, digital content, there's about millions and millions of false positives. So we've built an AI engine that helps reduce um, and kind of filter that content to make sure that they're only getting the relevant information. Cool. Tell us about how your background in sales and marketing has impacted your work at a tech startup. Um, hilariously enough, I um, this up until I got um, put in this role. So I started with the company in as a marketing person, and that's kind of what I've done most of my career on. Um, even though I'm responsible for all of our sales now, this is my first um, or job that I've actually been doing sales. So um, my background is public relations. So I'm a communicator by nature, and that has kind of driven me throughout. I've worked for, um, this is my second traditional startup, um, and both of them happen to have three co-founders. And then in the middle, I did a, I worked for a sole proprietorship. And um, all of those have a marketing component to them, but this is the first one that I kind of harnessed a lot of that communication style into how to sell. And it, it transformed, I guess, our sales operations team. Um, we do quite a bit of non-sales sales, if you will. Um, I didn't bring kind of any of the traditional um, methodologies of sales with me. And um, even though we do have some uh, traditional sales people on the team, a lot of them we have kind of molded. So we've got people from logistics or communications or um, business backgrounds that didn't traditionally do sales, but are very successful in the types of sales we do because it's um, very relationship based more than transactional. Right, right. Tell me a little bit about pivoting at a, at a startup because that's a, a, a fact of life for most organizations as they grow and find their footing. Yeah, um, I've had, so I think I've had two. I use, there's like a friends meme that I use in all kinds of presentations where they're lifting a coach up a, a hallway and they're yelling pivot at each other. And I find it so tough <laughs> because it is, um, I've, I've experienced it drastically in this company as well as my uh, first startup company that I worked for. We had a, a pretty monumental pivot. Um, in this company, it was by force. So it was, we either change what we're doing or we're not going to be able to do anything anymore, um, which I don't think a lot of startups necessarily go through. Um, it was a blessing in disguise for us. And it's one that I always try to communicate. Even if you're not forced to pivot, I think as an entrepreneur, it's really important to constantly be asking yourself, why are we doing it like this? Or is there a different market we should be looking at that we haven't before? Um, so for LifeRaft, we we're predominantly selling into um, the public sector. And there was actually some legislation and regulation changes around social content that pretty much excluded that market um, for us. So we had to make a very quick and intentional decision to say, we're not only are we not going to focus in this market anymore, we're going to fire all these customers um, to preserve our reputation and our ability to operate in the the industry, and we're going to take our hard nose into private sector with, and we put a plan together, uh, Albay, pretty hastily, but um, on what we thought would work and how to get to to market quick enough that we could recoup what we may have lost, and then also. Um, put us on a different trajectory. And that turned out to be um, a, a game changer for us. We went from a, a very slow organic growth to substantial, substantial growth over um, the last two and a half, almost three years. Um, so I think 
pivoting is very important and people get either scared or intimidated that you don't know what you don't know. And that's true, um, but you won't know unless you actually try. So we have definitely in that process failed a little bit um, with different industries that we've tried to go into that just aren't a good fit. But we wouldn't know that they weren't a good fit unless we had tried that. And fail fast is kind of something I say quite often in, in our company because we don't know what um, if we don't try. And some of the things that we never thought would work have been the most successful. So I would say pivoting is both important, but so is um, if you pivot in the wrong direction, just bail and, and turn around. <laughs> Right. Um, and tell us a little bit about, I mean, I mean, when you're pivoting, especially in a case like that, where you were sort of forced into some, uh, into some drastic change, um, you know, the world suddenly starts to look pretty big. How do you narrow down the possibilities in order to mm, figure out where you should pivot to? Yeah. Um, whiteboard the hell out of them is my, <laughs> my, uh, I'm like, make some lists. That's a good answer and, for just about any question. Yeah. Whiteboard the hell out of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and I think when you put all of the options on a whiteboard, you can start to, and, and you look at it as a collective, you can actually start to prioritize them. And that's what really becomes important in, in most aspects of business, in my opinion, is if you can prioritize, then you can focus. So if you list 101 different uh, ways you could do something or 101 opportunities that you could go after. If you start critically thinking about which ones make the most sense, you're going to get a good priority list at the top of that. And then to follow that, once you pull the trigger on, on delivering or executing on those options, measure, measure, measure. So metrics are your friend. It will tell you if you have made the right decision. It will absolutely tell you if you've made the wrong one. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm a big fan of measuring things in that component because people can't argue with numbers as much. So there's, if you don't try something and you say, well, I think we should go into this industry. I think we should, you know, create this product for this application. Okay. I think a lot of things, but that doesn't, it's not convincing enough for a team, especially one that's really lean. So if you start to do something and dip your toe in it and then can provide some solid facts on why it's working and the potential that it could be if it's expanded on, I think that's hard to argue with. Right. And just one other aspect of pivoting before we've beaten it to death. Um, <laughs> Um, you mentioned the idea of, you know, not being too feeling too settled, and the idea of you should be part of pivoting is sort of looking ahead to see what other fields should you look at, what might you, what other fields might you uh, expand into. So, d is, does that actually happen at LifeRaft? Are you do you do you pride yourselves on on being um, proactive about that? Uh, I do. It's most, I'm not sure proactive is the right word. Uh, we've created a culture that now people are, are there always asking or questioning or saying, okay, we're going to do this, but why? Um, so we do try and push the envelope, if you will, on trying new things and, and making sure that we're out of our comfort zone almost all the time. Um, but I think that applies quite broadly for the biggest thing I see, and, and we were guilty of it as well, and I often am, but I've got a, a good team of very opinionated people around me to check that, is for especially for entrepreneurs or founders of any um, capacity, they're very close and they typically come to their company or their idea because they were fixing a problem. What I don't think most entrepreneurs are good at is 
seeing that that actually could fix a lot of other problems. So they, it's more of an endpoint um, solution for how they got there, but they don't necessarily see the, the versatility in how it could solve a whole lot of other problems because it's not something that it was created for. Right. So what would you put on the whiteboard in order to, to remind people to keep their eyes open? Um, so we do, a, well, so I, just, I, I was just thinking a slogan or something. Yeah, I know the one I, we have, I can't, it, it has a curse word. In it. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> you can, can, you can just abbreviate that with, by saying the first letter. Um, so success through failure, I think is, is the big one. That's the slogan I would do. Success through failure. Yeah. No curse words there. No, it's not. But it, okay. so if, if you Google that, that's the slogan for another organization that starts with a curse word that they, again, encourage um, some failure and, and that I'm a part of that I think is very important for, um, for organizations. Gotcha. MJ, can you tell me how you built the sales operation at LifeRaft? And I'm wondering if there's some takeaways from that experience for our entrepreneurial audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is one I actually talk to talk about quite a bit. Um, I'm very proud of the team we've built. They're pretty amazing. Um, and the, the answer is a little bit of trial and error. It's mostly because I didn't know what I was doing when I took over the sales team. Um, and I had a, I don't know, I had a big issue with the way it was being run up until that point. So we had a very, very traditional kind of SaaS modeled sales team where everyone had a geographical territory and um, was trying to stick to that. And it was very stuffy. It was very um, kind of robotic in cadences. And um, surprisingly, it was not successful at all. So we weren't doing a lot of business that way. Uh, so when I took over was the same time that we pivoted out of public sector. So it gave me the opportunity to do a whole bunch of things, um, mostly because we didn't have any other choice and um, we were looking for solutions and new ideas so um, I took a different approach to the ops team um, I'd never really run a sale well I'd never run a sales team but I'd never worked well in an organization that just sold on geographical territory so we took the approach of industry-based um, and that came out of actually the whiteboarding session of what are all the things that we could do? And we there was some clear delineation on there's very specific industries that would have a really good application for this. So we said we're going to sell by industry. We hired um, a few. They weren't actually sales reps. We hired some people from logistics and some people with mixed backgrounds um, to come in as account executives and learn everything they possibly could about that industry and the customers that would be in that industry. And it turned out to be extremely effective um, to follow on and expand on that kind of momentum that we had. We brought in our customer success team and we actually matched them instead of them supporting the team at large. We matched them to a specific industry account executive so that they could also become experts. And the results that we found from that was, A, our account executives did a great job and built extremely um, strong connections and relationships with customers, which translated not just into revenue, but it actually um, referrals are our number one um, lead source. So we don't have to work as hard to get net new business. Um, and then from a secondary one, to get customers up and running, the period of training and support was reduced dramatically because our success managers already had all of the industry knowledge and the kind of 
verbiage to take them and communicate with those customers in the most effective way possible. Um, so those were kind of the key takeaways. From a failure perspective, things I wish we had done better. Um, we grew very well and we had lots of success. I regret not hiring middle managers uh, earlier in the game. I think that there was a lot of, we, we probably stretched the team and put undue stress on both the you know account executives and up to higher management uh, just because there was so many details and there's a lot that goes on in, in managing a large team that when you have a, an inside sales manager and some of those uh, key management roles, I think it alleviates a lot of the pressure and makes things operate a lot more smoothly, even if it's not um, a directed revenue generating person. Right. And that that's a hard thing for companies to understand is when they reach the point where they have to have <laughs> that non-revenue generating middle manager who actually yeah. becomes you know the key person in keeping everyone focused making sure that uh, all the deals that get done get written down properly and managed properly um, yeah. so, so so tell me just a little bit more about that those months or weeks of chaos. <laughs> Oh my God! It was I'm. It's like many months of chaos. <laughs> it uh, it it took a toll, and there's natural leaders I think that emerge from um, certain groups. So for us, I had a, an excellent uh, kind of upper management role um, that was filled internally, and we did try to fill the inside sales manager role by one of the account executives, and it was a massive failure. Um, it made them miserable. It made us miserable. It didn't work. And so we ended up going, um, and, and assessing, um, and brought in somebody from outside of the company to take on that role, which worked a lot better because that person didn't have existing relationships with the people that they were managing. And it made a lot of the communication points between, um, you know, all employees to upward management on things that they're either not happy with or wanted. They felt much more comfortable with a, a pass through. So I would definitely recommend filling that position, especially for companies that are trying to scale fast. So you want to grow rapidly. Um, that is a huge key um, to success because they do and they will pay back for um, their position tenfold, probably in the first three months when you realize how much time um, people, not just management, but but revenue generating um individuals are spending on unnecessary administrative tasks or confusion or lack of communication that um, can really be ironed out with that in, you know, in the middle position. Right. I'm also impressed that you were able to get to, to, to recruit non-sales people and turn them into successful salespeople. Uh, what was the secret there? Was there training? Was there a lot of vetting going in or psychological testing to make sure they had the, the chops? psychological testing we've got a bunch of office dogs so uh the first <laughs> test is if you can get in here and not be scared to death and and manage your way through um an interview full of dog farts and distractions you've you've basically <laughs> passed all psychological tests um the the non-sales people were actually quite easy so we there's some training but a lot of it is um, spending your first probably 45 days with the company, just figure out, don't try to learn anything except the product and your industry, because those two components as foundation will automatically um, allow you to speak and build relationships with your customer base. So we didn't ask them to focus on customers at all for the first 45 days. And then once they were ready for that, we would get them to target things like who would you, you know, in this industry, who's your ideal buyer? And then we would build lists from that. So for non-salespeople, they actually 
um, they were very comfortable with that. It's when we brought in and we, we've done this a few times uh, and some of them have survived and thrived, but traditional salespeople, so people that have uh, either a lengthy career in different types of sales positions or came from another SaaS-based um, sales company, it's very difficult. We've had way more failure than success with some of those individuals because they're very stuck in their habits. And there's, especially in the SaaS world, there's all these, you know, you have seven cadences over a two-month period and you'll be successful. And it's a volume game. That's what most people say for lead generation and um, acquiring new customers, where specifically for our industry, and I don't pretend that this might be um, the same everywhere because I'm sure it's not, but for security and um, the the different types of individuals that we interface with and what their problems are, they need to trust us. And so building the, the kind of long-term game has been really successful. And I don't find um, a lot of traditional salespeople are, are really aggressive out the gate. And for us specifically, that's not what we need. So kind of slowing them down to make them move faster was a big challenge, but was ultimately very successful because, I mean, our general sales cycle is quite short, um, even by a regular salesperson's perception, it's like 90 days, which is a pretty good uh, turnaround. So as long as they can adopt to the the non-sales philosophy, we've had a, a lot of success. Right. And I got to ask you, since Singh is, as, and, and I love the way that we're able to have a, a chat like this about the mechanics of mm-hmm. building a, a growth company. Um, you talked about we, you'd hire some people with Experience, sales experience, particularly in SaaS, and it didn't work out. And how long do you wait before you press the, the, the trap door button? Do you give them time to prove themselves? Do you give them some retraining or do you re- pull, um, pull the cord? Yeah. In my experience, there's uh, kind of three stages. So the first three months, and this isn't necessarily whether it's a salesperson, it's more on a fit thing. First three months, you'll be able to tell from an interpersonal perspective if they're going to make it or not. Um, I don't give anybody less than six months uh, before making a judgment call. I think you need to give them the opportunity to build a pipe and show you that they can do something. And then even then, I would say that there's exceptions. Um, Between six and nine months, if they're not able to show you that they can produce, that's when I have a pretty hard line and it's time to pull the cord because I mean ultimately we're not going to be successful with them but they're not going to be successful with us sales is a numbers game and you get paid for what you you sell and if they're not if it's not a good fit then it's not really a good use of either um, person's time so if someone else is about to start a business or scale a business and and particularly a, a build a sales force what's your number one tip for building your own sales force uh, if you're doing it from the ground up, I like map it out and, and figure out what you want. But then I, I, there's no, I think the, the only constant I've ever had is ask questions on why you do things and build a, a team around you that also asks questions on why you do things. Cause I think, um, especially in sales, there's a lot of either stereotypes or kind of tactics that did work and they might have worked as recently as five weeks ago. Um, but things go to style very quickly. And I think the way that communication changes and uh, styles change between relationships and selling and pipelines, um, people really need to be cognizant of that and just make sure that they're asking constantly, and why are we doing this? Is this the right thing to do? Is this successful? Like measure this. Yes, I have a 1% open rate, but if none of those ever convert, does that matter? Right. 
MJ, I'm wondering what type of advice that you would have for uh, women entrepreneurs and women in C-suite roles in male-dominated industries such as tech. Yeah, and um, so this is what I get quite often because, so tech in general is relatively male-dominated. Security is extremely male-dominated, so me... In, I've noticed that too. Yeah, so me being in security tech has been um, a bit of a ride for the last five years. I often find myself as the only female in a room um, or at a conference is also a very applicable one. So um, my advice is, and I do have, so my three co-founders just for transparency are, are all male. Um, I've only ever worked for, uh, I've never had a female boss. I've worked for two, three different companies that have all been male owners. Um, all my direct bosses have also been male. And um, until now, this, you know, I, I hired, I think my team's about 50% female, which was a big change and took, you know, about two years to get there. Um, but my advice to them is not, to, and I, it is very difficult um, in practicality to apply, but try not to think about being the only female in a room. Um, most of my experiences, especially when interacting in the C-suite, um, have been incredibly encouraging, and I have so many phenomenal uh, mentors that happen to be men. So I don't actively go out and, and seek female mentors just because I, I have a very well-rounded group of them. Um, now, would it be nice if I saw more females in the C-suite that I could learn from? Absolutely. And I think that will come. Um, but for the most part, my advice is do what you do and do it best. And don't be afraid to give an opinion. I think that's a big um point of not contention for me, but one that I always try and hammer home with my all of my employees, but specifically my female ones is just because you stand up and give your opinion, even if it's not the it doesn't influence or, or we don't decide on um, going with what you've proposed. The fact that you've stood up and shown that you can be prepared and knowledgeable and have, you know, a well-rounded conversation on things is very important when you talk to a C-suite group specifically. Um, so I think that that's a good takeaway. And then just, again, constantly be looking not just for opportunity with female entrepreneurs or female mentors, but there's a lot you can learn. And there's a, a really amazing group of male colleagues that I work with that are mentors and that give me not just encouragement, but also pushback when it's needed and, and a lot of honesty along the way. And I think that that goes pretty underrated um, when people start to talk about female in tech or um, females in the workforce in general. Right. Now, your background, you, you, you were in PR, you studied communications and marketing at Mount St. Vincent University. So how easy or difficult was it for you to, you know, become a techie? Yeah, it's uh, it's actually hilarious, not just on the tech side, but also on the female side. So my graduating class had four males in it. And then I immediately went into an industry and three companies that um, had no females. And I'm not sure how that happened. But um, from becoming a techie, that was complete fluke. I was finishing um, my 
public relations degree and had a final work term available. And no one wanted to hire me for some reason. I wasn't a good fit for a lot of the government jobs or the nonprofit jobs. And there was this uh, weird little tech company that was a startup. Um, and based on their job description, I couldn't figure out what it was that they did. So I went for an interview with them and uh, we hit it off very well. They're, they were incredibly innovative. They're one of the largest healthcare IT exits in Canada. Um, eventually, I, I started as employee number 11 with them. Uh, and then I never left. So they completely converted me into a techie, if you will. <laughs> and I'm just enough of a techie to be dangerous. So I can communicate between the product side. And um, I still lean pretty heavily on other resources to do that down to the dev side. But um, conceptually, I just kind of got very much on board with how do we fix this problem? And what's the product solution behind that that makes sense? And the fun part for me and where I can use a lot of those public relations skills is communicating that to customers. That's my job and my team's job. So if we can do an adequate um, job of understanding it is, you know, what it is that our product team does and the dev team does, then we are very well prepared to interface with customers and investors and anybody on the external side. Right. And how important has mentorship been to your career? Oh, my God, extremely. I never would have. So the first company I worked for was I had no idea what a startup was, let alone what a, a stock option was. Um, so having some guidance through that process was extremely important. But then fast forward seven years and I'm taking, you know, my third job transition since then. And I have, again, another term sheet and, and employment contract um, in front of me that I, don't, I didn't fully understand and I needed to call and I did call um, my original, the CEO from my first startup company and said, hey, this is what I'm looking at doing for my career. This is the term sheet they've had. What are the questions I need to ask? How do I make sure that this is the right decision for me? And the, the advice I got back was instrumental in not just my choice to take the job, but also the type of employment agreement that I ended up signing. Wow. Wow. And now pull this all together for me, if you please, as we sort of work our way out of this now. Um, sum up for me where LifeRaft is in terms of the size of the company, the, the breadth of its customer base and its growth rate. Uh, so we are at just about 45 people now. Um, that's another hot tip for anybody. We outgrew our space before we realized we were. So we're actually split between two floors in the same building right now uh, because we didn't think through that completely in our hiring plan. Uh, but we've got 45 people at a growth rate of um, about between 60 and 65 percent. And the we've got, oh, my God, almost 200 customers in probably across 20 maybe just shy of 20 different industries with a global footprint. So um, although we have everyone headquartered out of Halifax, Nova Scotia, we have people traveling all across the world to everywhere from Singapore to Dubai to all over Europe and Latin America to service our very, very large customers. We have a number of Fortune 10 companies that we support on an ongoing basis, um, and we're doing very well. We've just hit um, our second quarter um, for our fiscal year and we're on track to hammer home our numbers this this year and we're pretty excited to do it. That's fantastic. Congratulations on uh, all the success that you've had and that you've brought to to LifeRaft. So that, that, that's an exciting thing. Um, 
I really enjoyed this conversation. I love that we were able to get down in the weeds and talk about building a sales force and dismantling a sales force and, 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 and how to really build a business that can scale because that's that, that startup is hard, but scaling is worse. Uh, so it's important to remember. Um, just a few of my takeaways from this conversation. The metrics are your friend. Um, success through failure. So you just keep trying new things and measuring them and make them work. Uh, build your own sales force. Uh, leverage uh, your, 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 your mentors. And whiteboard the hell out of it. Whatever the problem is, whiteboard the hell out of it. I love it. Do you have one more piece of advice for <laughs> yes, our this, listeners? This one's for, a, it's a, there's a, probably a whole other podcast that could be done on it. Um, if everyone wants a, an enterprise customer, until they have it. So if you're going <laughs> to go after enterprise customers, have a game plan on how to service them because it is very, very challenging, very distracting. They can be your biggest whale, but that can come at a cost. So um, I would always just caution if you're going to go after enterprise, make sure that you've got a plan together. Wow. That is an amazing tip. It comes straight out of left field. I'm sorry we didn't talk more about that. So we'll have to get you on the program uh, another time. Mary Jane, MJ, Leslie of uh, of Life Raft in uh, Halifax. Thank you so much for taking part in uh, the Startup Canada podcast and for your support of Startup Canada. Yeah, my pleasure. It was, uh, it was great. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. We'll talk again. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.